Good to see you. How many of you got your canoe out of the garage and got ready for Eugene Winter? Uh, yeah, it's, that's my only, it's my rain joke. That's the one for the day. So good to have everybody here. Excited to be together uh, for a, another great service. We had our, a great first service. Got to do the video for Joy Church UO and their meeting right now. Just in case any of you aren't aware of that, Joy Church, we actually now have two locations. So we have another location happening at the University of Oregon right now as we speak, trying to preach the gospel and reach people there at University of Oregon, which is so exciting. It's just a great time uh, to be here. And I'm so excited to see all of you. Uh, church attendance always goes up after a duck loss because people are looking for the consolation of religion <laughs> to find some, you know, healing somewhere. Isn't that right? So <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, we're going to jump in. We're in the middle of a series right now called You Can't Say That in Church. And the point of this series uh, is that for a lot of people, they've got tough questions, objections, problems that maybe have stopped them or just been a barrier to faith in Jesus, barrier to faith in God. And maybe they've gone to even a church or with Christians and they felt shut down. Like I have questions, but I can't get them answered. And we're trying to do the absolute opposite side of that here at Joy Church. We want to invite people to bring questions, invite the tough questions. What are the things that would potentially, that are stopping you or, or an obstacle to faith? Because we believe this, that truth is not scared of honest doubt. God, if he's real, if the gospel is true, if Jesus really is the son of God and he died and rose again and is the Lord of, of everything, we, we believe that you, you're not going to intimidate or knock God over with your questions, right? You're not intimidating God. He's not scared like, oh, he's hiding from these questions. I can't answer these questions. No, in fact, God is actually looking for you and I more than we're even looking for him. God wants you to, op to turn over every stone, to, stone to, to kick open every door. It makes you feel really tough too, huh? Just poof, kick the door down and say, these are my questions. This is what, what I have because that process is so important. It's about finding out where truth and, and reality is. Come on, somebody. So that's what we're doing. Here's the thing. We can't cover uh, every single question or every single, uh, the depth of every question on a Sunday morning. So we have two avenues available for you for further study. Both of them are at joyeugene.com. The first is that we have a resource page available and we're adding things to that after every message. There's a wealth of information. So if you're, if you're like, I'm interested in these topics, we've talked about hell, we've talked about uh, science and, and faith. We've, we've talked, talking about today, we're talking about the Bible and why Christians believe the Bible. And you wanna look into that in further depth, go to joyeugene.com, click on the resources and check that out. There's videos, podcasts, articles, books, all kinds of stuff. The second avenue available to you is that you can ask any question that you have about God, life, spirituality, Christianity, theology, whatever is a question that you've wanted to ask, Pastor Jake, what kind of hair care products do you use? We'll answer the question. <laughs> it's just, it's a secret too it's great to know. Okay, it's a divine mystery. It's actually hair glue. Okay, uh, it's really hard. If you want to touch it out, don't touch it. I'm an introvert, but um, you're going to have to take my word for it. Uh, but but uh, uh, you can ask us questions, and we're, we're doing a weekly podcast. Um, we had three amigos this week. Judah was with Kyle and I. Yeah, he did a great job. He actually helped us straighten out our grammar, so that was appreciated. Um, and uh, yeah, anyways, you can ask questions, and we're answering those on a weekly podcast. So that's, that's what you can do to get further information that you might want. Well, today, we're going to take on the topic of the Bible. And we're going to ask the question, what's the deal with the Bible? What's the deal with the Bible? Now, this message is going to be for really two, two audiences, which just in case you weren't aware of this, at church on Sunday, there are people here that are like, I'm a Jesus person. I'm all in. I'm a Christian. Go Bible. Woo. Come on, wave at me. Where are you at? There's, those people are here. Okay. Then you have the other side of the spectrum. I'm not going to make you wave at us because I know that would just be horrendous. But you're exploring faith. You're maybe skeptical. Maybe you're even a little bit hostile. Like, how could there be a God uh, with all the crap that goes on in the world? That's a French word for bad things. And, you know, you're skeptical. And, and so what has happened on both sides of this is that if you're a Christian, you've probably heard it said, you know, and, and you take this as sort of like truth, like, well, the Bible says. How many of you have heard that? Well, this is what the Bible says. And then if you're in a Christian circle and somebody says, well, the Bible says this, and then we look, we look at it and we're like, yeah, you're right, that's what the Bible says, and we go with that, right? And that's reflecting a worldview that we accept the Bible as God's word, as authoritative, right? Now, if you're a skeptic, though, and you're like, well, I don't believe in this, you might as well hand me like Dr. Seuss, because to say the Bible says doesn't mean anything to me, right? Now, if you're a Christian and you're like, listen, 
you're talking to somebody and, and, and they're like, well, I don't believe in your God and I don't believe in the stuff that you believe in and, and Jesus is all right. He's like a surfer hippie guy 2,000 years ago, whatever, but I don't really accept the whole package that you're offering me. And you go, well, the Bible says, they're gonna say, so what, right? So a lot, and that's a fair thing, isn't it? Isn't that fair? If a person says, I don't believe in the Bible, then how is the Bible authoritative in their life? So, so the, the question is, what's the deal with the Bible? Why do Christians accept and believe it? Does it belong in this category with Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and like all these fairy tales and myths in this book and, and, some, and some, you know, kind of moral teachings or rules or so on and so forth? Or is there something more? And that's the question that we're going to answer today. But I think for a skeptic, I, I want to I I help skeptics out a little bit because I grew up as a Christian and so I was given um, the Bible as authoritative and I learned the Bible stories and I grew up you know, hearing about Noah and Noah's Ark and all the animals and two by two and they go in there and, you know, it was, it was cute and all this stuff. Uh, and, and I learned about Jonah and the whale and all this kind of stuff. And it just, it sort of came into my purview and I didn't, it didn't trigger anything. But I want you to think about somebody who's maybe in their 30s or 40s or 50s, who's grown up in a scientific, naturalistic, maybe a presupposition against the supernatural. And all of a sudden we're like, hey, we want to tell you about this book. So in the beginning, there's God. Well, where did he come from? Don't worry about that. In the beginning was God. And then we got this garden and two naked people and a talking snake. That's just like the first three chapters. <laughs> Hello. And then it goes on and we've got Noah's Ark and then Jonah and all these stuff in Israel and they're messing it up. And then even Jesus' disciples are messing stuff up. And the end of the Bible is this book called Revelations that nobody understands. No, I understand it all. Jesus is coming back at this time. No, you don't. You don't get it. And so for skeptics coming to the Bible, it can be very intimidating and even kind of a little bit off-putting for Christians to be like, well, the Bible says. So why do Christians believe in the Bible? Why do we accept it as God's word? And, and what about this view that says this book is just an irrelevant, ancient document, just, a, just irrelevant, outdated, not useful, not worthwhile. Some of you Christians are like, man, you're being rude to the Bible. No, but this is what we have to understand is that people see it this way, right? So what about that view? Why do we believe? Why, why should we ask thinking people? And for us as thinking people, as Christians who are accepting, because I accept the Bible as God's word, why as a thinking person in this day and age do I accept this? Well, I'll tell you why. Belief in the Bible as God's word, as authoritative, it starts from a different place. Uh, it starts from belief in, in what we call the infinite personal God. Now, if you've been here the, re the rest of this series, and if you haven't, I'd encourage you to go back and check out the messages that are on YouTube, uh, SoundCloud, you can get them video or audio. We've been laying a foundation and a framework for the existence of God. You see, if, if Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, in the beginning, God, if that's true, then it, then it follows and there's more to the story. You hear what I'm talking about here? And we believe in an infinite personal God. And what does it mean when I say personal? I mean a God that wants to know you and wants to be known by you. That's what I mean by personal. A God that communicates. A God that is in your business. Hello, somebody. See, it's one thing to just believe in like a life force out there, but we're talking about the Christian God is like, hey, I'm here, I want to talk to you, I want to know you, I want to have a relationship with you. In the scripture, it says that, that God is, a, uh, or Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, which is great when you're in trouble, but sometimes my brother bugs me and I want him out of my business, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> As I'm like, God, could you just ignore what I'm going to do right now? I want to watch this and I, need you to, I want you to ignore me, but God is personal, Hello. God, I want to do this with my bank account, so could you just not be looking right now? God is personal. He, he, he wants to know you. He wants to be known by you, which means he communicates, he interacts. It's not this dead, lifeless relationship. It's a dynamic, interactive relationship. So Christians believe in the Bible because we believe that if God wanted to communicate something across time and across culture, then he would communicate it in, in a particular way, and he chose to communicate it through the power of of the written word. That truth and revelation, that God's uh, perspective, that God's story of reality would be inscripturated, we put into words, which is a really, really good idea uh, that God did it this way. And I'll explain why. Ravi Zacharias gives an illustration about a young man that was defending his doctoral dissertation. And any of you that have done any uh, college work where you have to give citations, you know it's a pain in the neck, right? 
when you have to do your sources and go through, and this person said this, and write it all out in a particular way. And so this young man didn't like this, and he, he didn't really understand why he had to go through all this process of writing down and citing his sources. And so he came up with a plan. And so in his doctoral dissertation, he stands before the professors, and he says, I'm, this is my thesis as, spoken to, as supported by the cab driver that dropped me off today. And they're like, okay. And then he said, and it goes on and on, and he said, and this is my second thesis as, as communicated to me by the man that ran the elevator that brought me up uh, today. And he did this a few times. And they let him finish his dissertation. And at the end, he said, they said, well, what's, what, stop, what's, what's wrong here? You, you need to give us these citations in writing. You can't just tell us that somebody told you that, like back it up. And he said, no, see, that's the problem. If it's true, why do you need it in writing? What's the point? And they said, okay, fine, you pass. But then came graduation day. And there he was walking up onto the stage, so proud to receive his diploma from his professor. And right as he reached out his hand to get it, the professor pulled it back and said, why don't you just take my word for it? <clears throat> you see, there's something about the written word. There's something about the inscripturation process. And here's the thing about it. This book, these words that are here, why was it important that God put it in writing? Because it can be tested. Because we can then apply the same standards of analysis and we can, we can examine it like we would examine any other proposition of information. And it's testable and repeatable and it doesn't become the world's worst game of telephone to try to pass down truth about God and life and morality. Could you imagine if the Ten Commandments got passed through telephone for 2,000 years? We'd all be doing the weirdest stuff. We'd have it completely messed up if it was all oral tradition. So God decided I'm going to put my truth into written form. That's why we have the word. Now, here's a couple of things I want to start off today. Because there's some concepts and ideas that both skeptics and believers have about the Bible that are, that are wrong and, and some that are right. And I want to share these with you. Here's three things that the Bible is not. Number one, the Bible is not just a book of rules. A lot of people have this idea, well, if I read the Bible, it's going to tell me all the, the places I'm wrong and bad. And it's just boring because it's about control. And that's, that could not be further from the truth. The reality is that, yes, there are moral commandments. There are imperatives. There are normatives and rules in the Bible. But they're not about control. They're about freedom and flourishing. Human freedom and flourishing. That God, if he is the creator and designer of you and the whole universe, says, look, if I give you a moral command, it's not because I want to control you. It's because I want you to enjoy who you really are. You know, we don't pull up to the gas station and let's say you have a diesel engine. We don't pull up and be like, put gas in my car. And they're like, no, you have a diesel engine. This will harm your car. You're trying to control me. No, they're not. I'm trying to help you enjoy what you have. When God gives a rule, it's not to control you. It's to give you life. It's to give you freedom and flourishing. So the Bible is not just a book of rules. It's not a book of myths or fairy tales. Number two, a lot of people look at the Bible, they're like, yeah, you believe this stuff? The naked people and the, the flood and Jonah and the fish and Jesus walking on water. And what's the deal with Noah getting drunk with the vineyard? I mean, what's going on there? If you know this, I mean, there's some stuff in there, right? The, the Red Sea and all this supernatural stuff. But here's the thing, when the Bible... When, when the literature within the scripture is historical narrative, it purports to be historical. If somebody says, Jake, do you actually believe these things took place in history? I say, yes, I do. The main reason people have a problem with supernatural events is they come from a starting point, a presupposition against the possibility of the supernatural. See, a lot of people say, look, I know, they don't know, but they think they know, they have this idea that the world is a closed system. Like Carl Sagan said, the cosmos is all there was, there is, and ever will be. It's called naturalism. And so if you have this idea of naturalism, that the only thing that is possible is what takes place within the natural world, then anything supernatural by definition is false. And if you start reading the Bible with that premise, then you're going to find a bunch of myths and fairy tales because you're going to say, if it's supernatural, it's impossible, it didn't happen, it's fake, it's not true. But if you say, look, hold on a second, we're assuming too much, we're assuming too much. If we come back and we look at the scripture and say, is it possible that if there is a supernatural creator, that supernatural events are possible, then we find a different story there. 
So the Bible is not just a book of myths or fairy tales, and I'll go into more detail on that. Number three, it's not a textbook. This is a big one, and I think it's a big one for Christians, is that a lot of times we want the Bible to be more than what God wants the Bible to be. So this is the kind of thing you'll get. Well, we're going to read Genesis 1-1 today, and we're going to find out um, how God created the world. Um, and, and so a scientist comes along, we read our, our Genesis 1, and we see that, well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he did this on this day and this on that day. And we try to act like the Bible is a textbook on science. And the problem is that the, the, the people that wrote the scripture, that even wrote Genesis 1, because that's probably the biggest example of this, they were communicating truth. They were communicating literal history. They were communicating science, but they weren't writing from the perspective of trying to explain to you and I scientifically like a textbook would how the universe came into being. So the problem is when a scientist comes along and says, well, actually, did you know that if, if, God, if, if Genesis 1-1 were being explained scientifically, it would be incorrect because the order of things there um, is, is a little bit out of order. And so then we go, oh, well, we've got to throw the whole thing away because we, we understand it all perfectly, so we've got to throw it all the way out. If somebody challenges us on this, you know what we should actually do is step back in humility and say, okay, hold on. If a scientist says that maybe the, the order of things that happen in Genesis is a little different, maybe I should look and, and understand what was the author in Genesis trying to communicate and ultimately what is God trying to communicate? Do you think that God really cares if you think the universe is 6,000 years old or 60,000 if God supernaturally ex nihilo created the universe from nothing, do you think he could have done it in an instant and made the world appear old? Or do you think God could have made an old universe and let it develop over billions of years? Do you think God could have done it any way he wanted to? It's a miracle. And yet we're here arguing like, if you don't think the universe is 6,000 years old, you're going to hell. What? And I could just see God in heaven like, oh, Lord. <laughs> Who does he say? <laughs> It's not a textbook. Now, it's not a textbook. So don't read it like that. Now, here's the thing. Does that mean the Bible is not scientific? Absolutely not. The Bible is incredibly scientific because science can't tell us why the universe exists. The Bible speaks into that. It's the most profound scientific statement ever in the beginning God. It says this is actually the reason for the universe. It's incredibly scientific. Does the Bible delve into science? Absolutely. Does the Bible, is it historical? Absolutely. Is it a history textbook? No, because it's not the point. Does that make sense? It's not the point. If you like us reading a, if we, let's say we went to Lake Tahoe, and we, I've never been to Lake Tahoe, but I want to go. Maybe this is prophetic, you know, and you, you pull out, you know, at like a, a lodge, you have all the, the things, there's like a, a stand and it has a bunch of brochures with all the things you can do. Like you can go jet skiing, you can jump off cliffs, you can cave dive. You know what I'm talking about? And let's say we pulled open one of those things on cave diving. It was like spelunking for beginners, you know, spelunking for people who have a death wish. And you pull it out and you read it and you're like, this is, this is stupid. Why is that stupid? Well, it's talking about how, how much it costs to go cave diving. It's not telling me the history of caves. It's not explaining to me the geological content of the cave rocks. You'd go, that's not what the point of this literature is. And yet we act like the Bible has to be all forms in every moment for everything. It's not a textbook. Thank you, Pastor Jake. That was a good point. All right, what the Bible is. What the Bible is. Three things the Bible is. The Bible is a book. It's a book. You're like, duh, we saw it in your hand. No, it's, it's more than that. It's truth. It's God's word. But it's not less than a book. And what do I mean by this? We have to look at the Bible and take it as literature and read it appropriately to the genre of literature that we are reading. If you're reading a poetic portion of scripture, you need to read it as poetry, not as history. If you're reading a prophetic, uh, apocryphal piece of literature within the scripture, let, the, let the, the literature speak as you would let any form of literature speak. Does this make sense? John Lennox says this. He says, he's a brilliant uh, thinker. He says, it would be a pity if, in a desire to treat the Bible as more than a book, we ended up treating it as less than a book by not permitting it the range and use of language, order, and figures of speech that are or ought to be familiar to us from our ordinary experience of conversation and reading. So we need to treat the Bible as literature when we read it. This is a big deal for Christians because sometimes Christians, we get, we get afraid that someone is challenging the Bible when they talk about the Bible as literature. But what's actually happening is we are missing out on what God wants to actually do, what he actually wants to communicate to us. Come on, somebody. 
Number two, the Bible is a story. And this is huge because what you'll often find, and we'll talk about this in a moment, is that people want to take one verse out and then clobber the heck out of people with it. Right? Well, the Bible says this, and so now I'm going to destroy you. Um, just like Jesus would want me to. Or we take one verse out of context and create a crazy theology and say, well, you know, we have this one verse about this one thing and therefore we can treat this group of people one certain way. No, come on. So the Bible's a story. What do I mean by this? We have to take it and look at the entire narrative arc. What is God communicating through the whole book? Don't be looking in one part and being like, this happens a lot too. Somebody will look into Leviticus and be like, well, God commanded the people of Israel that they weren't allowed to wear, eat shellfish and wear these certain kinds of garments, and this is how they're supposed to treat slaves. Therefore, God is pro-slavery and anti-shellfish. Number one, I'll tell you, I know right now that Jesus is pro-shellfish. Come on. Because <laughs> shrimp fettuccine, people. Let's, I'm preaching truth right now. Thank you. You're missing the point because you're not understanding that you're, you're taking something out of the story, out of the, the arc of the story. What, what, what is happening here? There's creation. God created the world, the fall of man. A lot of the stuff that happens in the Bible, God is not for, he's against. It's, it's, it's describing the, the, the fall, that we're broken and sinful. But there's an answer in Jesus and the, and the story goes to redemption and it goes to resurrection. And you gotta see the whole story, primarily a story of our need for Jesus. If you don't look at the scripture through the lens of Jesus, you're going to miss a bunch of stuff. You're going to get it wrong. Number three, the Bible is truth. And if you're a skeptic today, here's the thing. You might be like, well, I don't accept that. That's fine. I'm going to talk about why Christians do accept this. But, if, but, but we do believe the Bible is truth, that it's God's word, which means it's authoritative in our lives because it reveals God to us and it reveals the nature of the universe. And here's something really important. It also reveals ourselves to ourselves. It reveals our own nature to us. Because if humans are anything, they're blind about themselves. You know, I, people tell me I have blind spots. I don't believe it because I'd see them if I did. <clears throat> Having fun. The Bible is truth. And that's an important thing, and we'll talk about that. But here's something about the Bible. It's fundamentally propositional in nature. And what does that mean? A proposition is simply a statement that can either be true or false. So if I, and we deal with propositions all the time, all day. People give us propositions. Um, you know, I'm, I'm speaking this statement out and it's either true or false. And we, we, we examine those propositions through our, our faculties of observation and reason. And we do this all the time. Whenever you drive, you are you're, you're dealing with propositions. And whenever you make decisions, you're dealing with propositions. Here's a proposition. Uh, if I say, I am, Jacob Schmelzer, right here before you, I am a 19-foot-tall, purple, 2,500-pound elephant. That's what I am. You, you say, okay. None of you really are believing me, though, right? You realize I am a preacher. Like, I'm, I'm supposed to tell the truth. My dad always says, hey, I'm not preaching now. I'm telling the truth. <laughs> so if I give you this proposition that I'm a 19-foot-tall purple elephant, you might say, well, you have some elephantine characteristics to you, but no. Based on reason and observation, you're not a purple elephant. That would be more fun than what you are, but you're not. You're, 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 you're taking a proposition and you're using what, what you have been given, your ability to reason and observe, to see if that proposition is true or false. And you're like, what the heck does this have to do with the Bible? Here's the thing. The Bible's full of propositions. It's full of propositions about truth. Propositions like there is a God. Propositions like Jesus lived at this time in history. Propositions like this was the guy who was the governor when Jesus was alive. Propositions about truth all through the scripture, which means what? It means that we can examine the Bible as a proposition. We can examine the propositions of, of scripture just like we would examine any other document, any other proposition of truth, any other statement. The study of the word of God and why Christians believe it is not in the, in the realm of the Easter bunny and Santa Claus and all that. It's in the realm of knowledge and the, and the realm that God has given us the faculties to observe and to practice reason. So why do Christians believe and trust the Bible? Number one, it's because it can be tested. It can be, it's verifiable and it's also falsifiable. If Jesus didn't exist, if there is no such a thing as Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
who lived 2,000 years ago in this particular geographic area, Christianity is bunk. It falls apart, okay? So that's a proposition from the area of history that if we look at that proposition and we examine it and we say, Jesus doesn't even exist, then Christianity's gone. Hello? Just in case you were worried about it, you know, it is true, but that Jesus existed. But if you're a Christian and like there is no Jesus, there are actual NFL football games on right now. Like we could be doing something else other than this. Did you know that? Like if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, what are we doing here? Sure, this is a nice place to be, but wouldn't you all rather be giving your life to something else? There's a lot better stuff to do if Jesus isn't even a real person. So you're like, what's, what's he talking about here? That's a proposition of truth. It's a proposition that can be tested. It's a proposition that can be verified or falsified. And that's one of the reasons Christians accept the Bible because what we found is that when you test the Bible and you apply the same critiques that you would apply to any propositions of truth in life, that you find it to be valid, that it stands the test, uh, the test of history. Dr. William Lane Craig said, Christianity is not a code for living or a philosophy of religion. Rather, it is rooted in real events of history. The reason it's scandalous is because it ties up the truth of Christianity with the truth of those historical facts. This means that if these historical events are shown to be fraudulent or fictional, then the whole basis of Christianity is removed. To put it as simply as possible, the truth or falsity of Christianity stands or falls with, with individual events within history. If Jesus didn't live and die on the cross and raise from the dead, our faith is invalidated. And isn't it amazing that God would allow his truth to be brought into a category like history that human beings could literally observe and find out if it was true or false. This is one of the reasons why we accept and believe the Bible as God's word. Early Christians fully believed in the historicity of, of, of Jesus and, and, and their experiences and so on and so forth. I mean, we talked about this in week one in this series of John, one of Jesus' disciples. He said, we touched him. We, 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 we saw him with our own eyes. We were with him. We had food together. The guy that's called Doubting Thomas in the Bible, he had to put his hand in Jesus' wound. That's weird. <laughs> hey, nice wound. Can I touch it? No. <laughs> Not unless you're a doctor. And even then, it's a little weird. What were they saying, though? They, they, there was a tangibility, a reality to history. You think about Jesus' disciples. All of, they all went on and got martyred for this belief that Jesus existed and was who he said he was. This is amazing. I mean, I want you to think about Peter who was literally crucified upside down. And like on day two of this crucifixion upside down, wouldn't you be there if you didn't really think that Jesus was real? You, wouldn't you be like, I think I need to reevaluate my life choices at this moment. But here's the thing. They believed in the historical reality. It's testable. It's falsifiable. It's why Christians put confidence in it. I would encourage any of you, if you're a skeptic and you want to invalidate Christianity, maybe you're hostile, like Christians are stupid. I don't like them. They're rude and judgmental, all this stuff. And I'm going to invalidate the whole faith. And you want to do that. Let me give you the best way to do that. Prove that Jesus Christ did not rise from, rise from the dead. And if you can do that, let's all go home. But, but here's the thing. For thousands of years, people have been trying to do that. And the problem is when they look into it, they realize there might be something here. It's historical. One of the other things that's testable is the, the whole idea of bibliographic evidence, talking about the manuscripts of Scripture. So just in case you didn't realize this, this is not an original copy. <laughs> it's not like a Bible college you go, and when you become a pastor, they're like, here's your copy that Jesus wrote. Here you go. It's <laughs> your copy. Woo! Don't lose it. You know what I mean? Like, I got kids. I wouldn't have this out in public. You know what I mean? I'd have it in a, this is not an original copy. So what we have here is a copy uh, of the words that were spoken and written down from thousands and thousands of years ago, passed down. And so that process of passing things down, a lot of people will say, look, I don't believe it because it's been too, much, too long, uh, too many things could have gone wrong. But when you begin to study the quality, the quantity, uh, and the recency of the manuscripts of, of how we got to this, it's absolutely astounding. Let me read this quote to you. Pastor Mark Clark, in his book, The Problem of God, he talks about this idea of the quantity of manuscripts. He says, basically, uh, when trying to deduce whether an ancient document can be trusted, scholars must consider a number of factors. One of those is the number of manuscripts available of a particular document, because the more manuscripts there are, the more it can be compared and contrasted for possible contradictions, mistakes, or inconsistencies. In other words, the more the better. 
Scholars point out that if we compare the number of New Testament manuscripts to other writings in antiquity that are accepted as accurate, we find that it is the most trustworthy set of documents in the entire ancient world. He gives us some examples. He says, there's this guy Thucydides. Thucydides lived from 460 to 365 BC, wrote extensively about Greco-Roman culture, and most scholars accept the writings of Thucydides that they're historically accurate. Now we have, he says, in existence eight copies of his writings, which actually is impressive. 2,000 years. I can't even keep my keys where they are straight. You know what I mean? So they've got eight copies of this information that's thousands and thousands of years old. But the earliest was transcribed 1,300 years after the events of which he wrote. There are five copies of Aristotle's Poetics dated 1,400 years after the original. Caesar's Gaelic Wars describe events that occurred in 58 BC. And the few manuscripts scholars have are from 1,000 years after his death. There are two ancient biographies of Alexander the Great that are seen as authoritative and fully accurate, the earliest which was written 400 years after he died. Historians trust all these as historically accurate. So what about the New Testament? This is going to blow your mind. Believe it or not, there are over 25,000 copies of the New Testament documents in existence. Thucydides, eight. New Testament, 25,000. That number doubles if you count the, the quotations of the early church fathers quoting the original documents that they had their eyes on. And that number is wrong, and I'll tell you why, because every single day it increases because we continue to find fragments, scrolls, like the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found. That was a huge trove of, of again, verifying that the, the scriptures were accurate. They found an entire copy of the book of Isaiah. Amazing stuff. 25,000. And now we take Thucydides and say Thucydides was a historian. We have his words from 1,300 years. After that copy, we have eight copies, and it, it's fact. And yet you say, we can't know if there was really a Jesus and the New Testament writings are accurate. Come on, somebody. You either got to throw out history and say, forget Greek history. We don't know anything about the Greeks. Or you have to say, look, as far as we can know anything in this sphere of knowledge, we have to take the writings of the New Testament seriously. 25,000. It's the greatest number of manuscripts by far of any writing of its kind from the ancient world. It's incredible. What about the recency? The... the the, uh, Alexander the Great, 400 years after he died, yet we believe in Alexander the Great. Julius Caesar, 1,000 years after the events of the Gaelic War. That's the earliest copy, 1,000 years after, and yet we accept it as historical fact. What about Jesus? What about the New Testament? The New Testament was written as early as 15 to 20 years after the life of Jesus. 15 to 20 years, Paul's letters. We have copies from 15 to 20 years even the most liberal scholars contend that the Gospels, at the latest date, were written between 30 and 50 years after the life and death of Jesus. 30 to 50 years. I want you to think about this event historically. It's called World War II. How many of you believe in World War II? Does anybody not? Okay. We accept the historicity. Now, what if I told you, well, you remember World War II. Yeah, you weren't alive, but it was about 50, 60, 70 years ago. Remember when Hitler nuked Brazil? You're like, uh, that didn't happen. No, 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 wait a second. Remember Hitler, he nuked Brazil. Hitler was, he was the guy from Poland, right? And then there was that guy, Churchill. He was the American general, the submarine guy, right? You're like, you're messing it all up. Historians in the back are just like, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> History buzz, ah, just man demons out. Okay. I'm messing it all up, but here's the thing. How do you know? You're like, well, we know because... In our hit way, that's not distant enough for us to get it that wrong. And yet people are like, well, the Jesus accounts are legend. Jesus is a legend. Maybe he didn't exist. He wasn't really who the gospel writers say. You're talking about 15, 20, even 50 years later, there are people, even in the New Testament, they're like, talk to this person. They were there. They saw it. In the New Testament, right after, just not very long after, all these things are being written down. These are just the earliest copies. It's not they weren't earlier copies before. It's that these are the earliest copies that we have, and we continue to find ones even closer. It's too, what's the point of this? It's too close to be a legend. It's too close. According to any structure that we evaluate truth propositions by when it comes to history, the New Testament is unassailable historically. Come on, somebody. Check it out for yourself. You want to say, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, you don't get it, no, it's legend, check it out for yourself. Study, look into it, I want you to. Because here's the thing, truth is not scared. 
Either the New Testament is, it, when you apply these standards of testing these propositions, does it stand the test? What about archaeology? Dr. Nelson Gluick said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. For those of us that need this translated into English, he's saying, ain't no archaeology ever disproved the Bible. <laughs> Score, you're welcome. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm and clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible and by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical description has often led to amazing discoveries. What Dr. Gluick is saying is that when we've examined the scripture and we've taken it seriously as a document of history, we've actually, it's actually led us to figure stuff out archaeologically that we didn't before. People that say, no, archaeology disproves the Bible, it does not. Uh, Dr. Miller Burroughs, a professor of archaeology at Yale University, I think we've heard of that place, he said, more than one archaeologist has found his respect for the Bible increased by the experience of excavation in Palestine. Archaeology has in many cases refuted the views of modern critics. It has shown in a number of instances that these views rest on false assumptions and unreal artificial schemes of historical development. In other words, they're coming to the table loaded with presuppositions. This is a real contribution and not to be minimized. The excessive skepticism of many liberal theologians stems not from a careful evaluation of the available data, but from an enormous predisposition against the supernatural. In other words, when you come to the text and you come, or you come to the archaeological excavation and you assume that the Bible's wrong, you're going to interpret things differently. But if you let the Bible speak for itself as a historical document, what you will find by and large, which has been the experience of archaeologists over the last several hundred years as this discipline has, has evolved and come into being, as a tester of knowledge and so on and so forth, is that the Bible has stood the test. And I think that's fascinating. That God, again, he's not hiding. He's not hiding behind religion. He's not hiding behind just belief. He's not hiding behind blind faith. He's saying, in any way that a human being can know something, come and find out if I'm here or not. And the Bible stands that test. One last one I'll give you. As we talk about the testability of the, of the scriptures of the Bible is, what we call documentary analysis. So when you assess a document, if we were to approach any document like the Bible or Dr. Seuss or a book of hymns or whatever, we're going to assess that document through certain tests, right? And, and those are jobs for people that um, are very much in love with wearing glasses and sitting in d dusty rooms and so on and so forth. So maybe you and I don't want to do that, but there are people that give their life to assess the internal nature of documents, okay? And one way to check documents out is to look at their internal consistency. In other words, is this, is this a big hodgepodge? Was it all cut and pasted and, and created to, to say something? Or, or what's happening here? What's the consistency? Here's the amazing thing. The Bible is actually 66 books written by 40 different authors from every walk of life, kings, poets, shepherds, all kinds of different people, in a litany of styles, lots of different genres, over a 1,500-year period, divided into two testaments. So the Bible, what's amazing about it is that in all this diversity, there's a unity. That as even documentary critique has shown, that there's a consistency within the scriptures, that narrative that I'm talking about, that story that points us to Jesus. And that actually there's a theme that it appears within the scriptures that the Bible was actually written, that there was a common uh, source from, for the information that's presented because of the consistency that's there. That's an amazing thing that in all that diversity, there's unity. It stands the test. Now, people will say, well, what about the contradictions? Yeah, you're saying that, okay, sure, somebody said that it, it's, it's a story. Somebody said there's unity, there's consistency, but, but yeah, but you know, this, this part of the Bible says there were two angels there. This part says there were one. So the Bible is contradictory. Therefore, God doesn't exist or whatever, the, where we land on that. Here's the thing. I don't have time to go into every contradiction, but I've studied the contradictions in the Bible. And when you look at the contradictions, they are either not contradictory at all, or they are so minor, so for instance, that they, they in no way affect at all the theological or truth proposition that's being made underlying. I want you to imagine that you opened up a book like the Bible and you find like a smudge uh, on the corner of a page and you can't read a word or something, you don't say, well, the whole thing, throw it out, it's completely false. And yet that's the kind of, a, that's the kind of mindset that people, when they look for errors in the Bible, they, they use. They'll say, well, this scholar, you know, this, 
This copy of the Bible says there were 600 chariots and this copy says there were 6,000. Which one is it? God doesn't exist. Do you really want God to come down and be like, look, there's 600 chariots, eat it. Woof, and then, come on, right? Like, this isn't how we think about things in the real world, using observation, experience, knowledge. So when you talk about things like that, are there scribal errors? Do we have a few instances in the, in the scriptures, places where, where one detail or something is a little bit different from a telling to a telling? Yes, some of the times you look and you realize, oh, they're talking about two different instances. So for instance, in the New Testament, when Jesus tells a story one way and one of the gospel writers tells it another, do you think it's possible that Jesus maybe told the story a little different but other times he told it? You think that in three years, Jesus maybe told the parable of the sower more than once? But see, the thing is, if we come with this arrogance, like, well, we're, we're, we're approaching the scripture and holding it to some standard that doesn't even exist in our understanding of what, is, what truth actually is or fact actually is, yeah, we can invalidate anything in life. But here's the thing. We're going to post a, a resource this week on the page and let you see every contradiction in the Bible for yourself. There's actually a website where somebody went through and found every single thing that appears even remotely contradictory and they walk through it one by one by one by one by one. So if you're that kind of person, have at it. Have at it. Because I've, I've done it. I'm that kind of person. I want to know, right? I think it's good. Check it out. But what I will say to you is this. There is no contradiction in the scripture that in any way affects any of the fundamental truth propositions. Not one contradiction in any way contravenes the idea that Jesus is God. There is not one contradiction or anything, any, any supposed contradiction or real that in any way messes with the idea that there's a God. There's nothing that affects what the Bible is actually trying to communicate. So the Bible is testable and it passes the test. It's verifiable, falsifiable through the areas of history, documentary analysis, bibliographic research, so on and so forth. Okay, that's the boring part. Let's move on. Second thing, the Bible is intellectually viable. It's intellectually viable. What I mean by this is that it gives us propositional truth and it, and it presents to us a cogent and cohesive worldview that actually has the explanatory power to answer, answer the deep questions of our life. Questions like, why is there something rather than nothing? Why do we exist at all? Questions like, what's the meaning of life? Questions like, why do I appreciate art and beauty and love and poetry and so on and so forth? And what is the meaning of my, my own nature? The Bible presents a cohesive picture as a worldview. When you read the scriptures, it gives you answers to all these questions. You might not like the answers. Oh, you mean God cares about who I have sex with? Oh man, I don't want to, I'm throwing that out. But that's you judging it from your perspective, not letting the Bible speak to you from God's perspective. Hello, somebody. We can throw it out because we don't like the answers, but the reality is that it's intellectually viable because it gives concrete answers for the deep questions of life. Origin, truth, meaning, morality, so on and so forth. And you say, what about the other holy books? Well, I'm not going to demean someone else's holy scriptures, but the reality is if you were to take the Quran or the writings of the Buddha or the, the, the uh, Vedic scriptures for the Hindus or whatever, you, and you lay it out there, what you're going to find is that they don't necessarily pass the same tests, whether of historicity or intellectual viability. There's discrepancy not in detail, but discrepancy in fundamental propositions of truth. Now, that's a, that's a big statement, but what I'm basically saying is not all holy scriptures are created equally, okay? We need to assess them and examine. So people say, okay, what about the challenges of the intellectual level of scripture? Two things. I do not have time to go into these, but I'll throw them out there. The two biggest challenges that come on the intellectual level of scripture are the challenge of miracle and the challenge of misunderstanding. The first one we've already dealt with, that if I approach scripture with a, a presupposition against the supernatural, then I will find the Bible to be full of myths and fairy tales because miracles can't happen. People can't walk on water. People don't, can't raise from the dead. That doesn't happen. That's not natural. It doesn't fit into my worldview, so I immediately reject it. That's not a problem with the Bible. That's a problem with your presupposition. That's a philosophical question not, not a problem with the worldview, not a problem with the Bible. The second one is what we call misunderstandings. And I mentioned this a little bit, that people will take one verse, maybe they'll go into the Old Testament, and they'll look at when God is dealing with the nation of Israel, and he's giving them particular laws in a particular culture in a particular time, and they'll say, you see, God, he says something about slavery, so therefore, coming from a 21st century perspective, thinking I understand what God is saying, how they're receiving it, or what's happening in their culture, I'm going to make an enormous assumption that God is promoting something that I find to be morally reprehensible, and therefore, because I'm all-knowing all uh, and have the ability to judge the creator of the universe when what he said here in one particular moment, 
um, I'm going to say the whole thing is bunk and throw it out. That is colossally stupid. First of all, we, we should approach, if you're a Christian and you read the Bible and you think, I get it, you're wrong. You don't. I've literally given my entire life to, I mean, nearly my entire adult life to trying to understand the Bible. Can I tell you what happens to me every week when I go to study? I realize, whoa, I don't really know as much as I thought I did. When you read the Bible, there's always more. I don't care how much you know, there's always more because you'll, you'll miss something. There's a cultural detail. There's, a, there's, a, there's another verse that talks about something and you don't get the whole story. Don't be so arrogant to think that you can read one verse and then throw the thing out. You, you can't do that. You got to think about it in the whole story and so on and so forth. But misunderstandings, let me give you one thing. In the Old Testament, one of the things people bring up is they say, well, look, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these guys had multiple wives. So God is pro-polygamy. First of all, if you're a married man, I'm not pro-polygamy. My wife is amazing and she's plenty, right? <laughs> all the way around, just plenty. And I think I'm probably enough for her, right? Um, hopefully. Is that true, babe? Oh. Okay. Is God pro-polygamy? Because you know, Isaac and, or Jacob had multiple wives. There's a huge difference between something that's descriptive versus something that's prescriptive. God, in so, in so much of the Old Testament, is God described, is, is something is being described as what happened, not what God intends or wants to happen. Read the whole story. When you read about Jacob and his multiple wives, it did not work out. <laughs> it was a mess. So what, why is it in the Bible? So God can be like, see, it's okay to have multiple wives. No, it's in the Bible so you can see how screwed up humans are. And God literally is saying, this is not what, how you're supposed to do it. You are not gonna have freedom. You are not gonna flourish, but I'll still work with you and I'll still use you. I'll still move in your life. How many of you are okay that we don't get it right and God still works with us? But here's the problem. If we misunderstand the scripture and we take that which is descriptive to be prescriptive, we're gonna miss the whole thing. Misunderstandings. There is a ton of stuff I wanna say about that. Ask the questions on the podcast. And I wanna respect your time today. We will disrespect your time in the podcast. All right, <laughs> moving on. It's practically and spiritually valuable. Number three, it's practically and spiritually valuable. Uh, Jesus said this. He said, he who listens to my teaching and does it is like a person who builds their life on the rock. And when the storms come, when the rains fall, when the wind blows, the house is not going to fall. And what Jesus is saying is there, that all truth, not all propositions of truth are created equal. He says, my teachings, my word, the scriptures, if you use that as the basis of your life, when the storms of life come, your house will not fall down. But if you build your life on another proposition of truth and it's not, it's sand, it's not really true, it's not really rock, then it's going to collapse. And what people all throughout history, followers of Christ that have placed their faith in Jesus and, and the scripture, what they found is that it's practically and spiritually valuable when you follow it, when you apply it, it works. And don't we live in a day and an age that is desperate, thirsty for truth? Not opinions, not perspectives, not voices, not more noise, not just more, more, more talking. You could turn on Fox News or CNN or any of those and people just blah, 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 blah. It's just word vomiting all day. Opinions, 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 opinions. What is true? And the beautiful thing is that Jesus personifies truth and he presents truth. See, the Bible is not the whole truth. You're like, oh, the Bible's not the whole truth. No, you gotta know Jesus the incarnational nature of truth. But Jesus presents truth propositionally in the scriptures. And he says, look, if you take these teachings, you can build your life on it. Thousands of years ago, people who didn't have the internet and didn't have the news and didn't have the noise and didn't have all this stuff that we have and access to technology and the ability to turn over every rock, so on and so forth, they had the same existential problems though, this need for truth, this need to anchor their soul to something, this need to say, this is what is true and everything else I will reference from this this truth. Thousands of years ago, someone penned these words in Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your instructions. I think about them all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are my constant guide. Yes, I have more insight than my teachers, for I am always thinking of your laws. I am even wiser than my elders, for I have kept your 
commandments. I have refused to walk on any evil path so that I may remain obedient to your word. I haven't turned away from your regulations for you have taught me well. How sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. Your commandments give me understanding. No wonder I hate every false way of life. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Thousands of years ago, people understood to connect with truth and anchor your life to it is a beautiful thing. Here's the thing. If this book is actually God's word and it's true, why are we not literally waking up in a hurry every morning to rip it open and get inside of it and understand? Do you know what a tragedy it is for God's people, those of us that are followers of Jesus, to allow God's truth that speaks to the entire circle of reality, every single thing that is important, to let this book sit or to sit and be like, well, I don't understand it, so I'm just going to leave it there. That is a travesty. If this is God's word, we should wake up in a hurry every day and be like, "Woo! what are you excited about? I get, to, I get to connect with truth. I get to cut through all the noise and find out what God says about reality and what God says about me and what God says about us and what God says about fixing this mess that we live in. I get to connect with God's truth. Why are we not literally ripping it open every day? Two things. How should we respond to this message? If you are a follower of Jesus don't be content to just be a devotional reader of the Bible. Like that's a great first step. If you're here and you don't read the Bible, get up every morning, read it five minutes, get a verse, take it for yourself. Yeah, that's great. But don't be content because you know, you don't just read the Bible for you. You're reading it for every person that doesn't know Jesus. And when they come and they're like, hey, what's the deal with the Bible? Hey, what's the deal with the two naked people and the snake? And you're like, I don't know. That's a problem. That's a problem. You, you as a follower of Jesus need to be able to say, look, let me open the scriptures to you. Let me explain to you why. Let me explain to you why I believe in this. Let me tell you what it's done for my life. Let me tell you, uh, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> coughing. Let me tell you, I drink water when you preach. Let me tell you what this does in your life. Come on, somebody. As a follower of Jesus, you need to go deeper than just devotional reading. You need to study the Bible and begin to understand, begin to know, begin to dig in. And here's the thing, you're like, well, I'm going to heaven, I love Jesus, what's the big deal? Other people are going to hell. And yet you have the words of life on your shelf, sitting on your bedside table, on your phone, in the you version. Don't neglect it, dig in, go deeper. Number two, if you're a skeptic, the challenge is the same. If you really want to disprove, if you really want to show how ridiculous the Bible is, you got to study it. You got to know it. Don't fight against the character. Find the real thing. And if you're a skeptic, why would you allow other people's presuppositions and preconceived notions deprive you of the right to meet the real Jesus as presented in the Gospels? See, a lot of, why would you let a bunch of people living in their mom's basement in their pajamas mess up your ability going on message boards and reading, what do atheists say about this? Why would you let those people steal your opportunity to connect with Jesus Christ, the greatest human being who, if he is what he says he is, also has the ability to give you eternal life? Why would you not lean into that? So my challenge for you is to go deeper. Get your questions answered. Don't be afraid. Don't hide. Don't stay in the shadows. Step forward and say, this is my problem with this belief. This is my problem because there's people... Right here, I'll, I'll take your questions. I'll, I'll talk to you. If I don't know, I'll say I don't know. But we want to help you take that next step, whatever that looks like.